and welcome back to Banter, the official policy podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Matt Winesett. And I'm Max Frost. And today we've got on Mike Giglio, a staff writer for The Atlantic, out with a new book. The book is called Shatter the Nations, ISIS and the War for the Caliphate. And Mike was a foreign correspondent based in Turkey covering the Syrian war for a number of years. He was really kind of in the thick of it, especially the battle for Mosul. He did some crazy stuff. The book is fantastic. Highly recommend it. Yeah, the book starts off just as a quick prologue. Him in a Humvee taking the first, I think he said the very first Humvee into West Mosul. There's an ISIS truck bomb coming at them full speed. And then, of course, in a classic author fashion, leaves it on a cliffhanger. You got to read the rest of the book to find out what happens. But you can assume that he survives because he joined us in studio. Yeah. But it is a page turner. Max and I both read it this past weekend, actually, on the way down to Charlottesville. And I cannot put it down the entire train. I did not even care that the train was delayed an hour. <laughs> classic Amtrak. <laughs> so without further ado, here is Mike. Mike, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So can you just start a bit? Tell us about how you ended up in Syria. How'd you end up as a war correspondent and what led you to writing this book? So I, I was uh, actually working for Newsweek on their foreign desk in 2010 and 2011. And I was sort of like uh, mid-career or early career. I was 25, 26, but like a glorified intern. So I had like almost like a secretary's job where I, I had to like attend all the editorial meetings and put together like internal memos of what was appearing in the magazine every week. But then they also let me like pitch stories on the on the foreign on the foreign desk. And so while, while I was there, the the Arab Spring uh, started, and I, I think because I was trapped in New York and I didn't really, I was just like desperate to find some way to cover what was happening overseas because I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I started really focusing on the Facebook angle to the protests that were happening in Egypt at the time. And through that, I, I got in touch with this anonymous persona who was like leading the Facebook organizing effort. And no one knew who he was at the time, including me. But he ended up being uh, this guy named Wao Gunim, who was like uh, a Google executive um, and ended up becoming like this new sensation when he got outed and arrested in, in Egypt. Um, and so I broke, a, I broke a number of stories for, for Newsweek based on that relationship. Um, and after that, they decided to send me out to cover the Arab Spring. And so I actually got out there covering, you know, what I thought would be like this new hopeful moment. And then like, like a lot of journalists who, who went out there to cover it, um, who were around my age, uh, you know, we, we sort of just tracked it as it spiraled into chaos. And so, you know, Egypt became Syria, became a civil war, it became ISIS. Yeah. And the book is very people centric. Can you just talk about maybe two of the stories that really stuck out to you? I think you had contacts in ISIS as well as there's a great Kurdish story as well. Yeah, you know, part of the way I, I did the reporting overseas was really try to like show who are the people behind the different personas that we kind of see in a very shallow sense when we think about a war. And so, you know, uh, I decided with my editor early on, I was with BuzzFeed at the time when I, when I really started covering ISIS, if we're going to cover them, we need to make an effort to talk to them. And sometimes that meant I could um, talk to someone who was in or, or like really close to ISIS. And other times it meant talking to a recent defector. Um, so I'd speak to people who were in hiding, having just left the group. And other times it meant dealing with the smugglers and the traffickers who were sort of work for ISIS on and off, but weren't necessarily ISIS members. And one, one of the stories, you know, from among this crowd of people that, that the book uh, relates in one of the chapters um, that always kind of stuck with me is actually the story of a, of a, a defector. So I, I met um, a Syrian who was in college when the, the war started and had gradually, um, you know, gone from being a guy who was chasing girls and smoking cigarettes and just like a regular college student to 
you know, seeing just this kind of extreme violence and, and, and chaos and joined ISIS. He became like a sort of within ISIS, like a very well-known field commander. And he was actually part of the Yazidi genocide. So he, he helped to lead the charge into the, sound, the town of Sinjar in northern Iraq that saw ISIS uh, take you know, slaves and, and con- commit mass executions against the Yazidi religious minority. And he, uh, being part of that massacre, so- sort of shocked his conscience to the point where he was able to, to see, you know, it's almost like waking up from like a dream, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or, or from a nightmare, really. And he, he sort of saw what was kind of like shook him out of the spell. And then, you know, the story is, is about what he saw in Sinjar, but also like how hard it was even after he realized that he'd been brainwashed and that he, he was uh, on the wrong path and how hard it was for him to extricate himself from the group after that. So how do you feel talking to somebody like that? I, I do this kind of interview technique with people um, where I say, because I wasn't there for the massacre or for his conversion to ISIS or his, his, his uh, decision to leave. But I say, you know, just tell me step by step how you got there. Pretend that your eyes are, are a camera. Like what, what are you seeing like as you go about you know, what would I see if I was in your head? What would I be thinking if I was in your head? And I do that to sort of like try to understand, like, I I don't think, you know, we can ever really, you know, it's impossible to really sympathize with someone committing atrocities, right? But I I think if you can kind of understand the, at least understand the different steps that someone takes from the beginning when they were a regular person to the end when they got to this kind of unimaginable state of being a member of ISIS, it's humanizing, right? Like we can see, we can understand each step in its context, even if we don't agree with it and we can, we might condemn it. And I think the more human you understand these people to be, like understanding ISIS as humans who make bad decisions rather than stormtroopers who are just sort of like blanket evil and just march forward without any agency. It, on the one hand, it, it gives us, you know, sympathy, which I think is important in journalism. But on the other hand, more than that, it actually makes them scarier, right? If we recognize traces of humanity, even in terrorists, I think we can see um, that it's not actually this foreign, impossible thing, but that it's actually, you know, something that that people are capable of um, and, that, and that it should scare us more, you know, because of that. Yeah, what, one of the scarier lines of the book, I thought, was when you say that, I don't know if it was this person or someone else that say they joined ISIS because they viewed it as a, quote, pillar of order amid the chaos. That's actually him, yeah. That is, yeah, I mean, because that just implies the world is pretty chaotic, and yeah. this, it seems like ISIS might have an enduring appeal even beyond the destruction of the caliphate. Yeah, you know, it's like, I think, you know, you can't understand, the reason I start the book in the Arab Spring is, first of all, you can't understand ISIS if you don't understand this sort of hope that the Arab Spring embodied, and the idea that the, you know, America and the West were actually on the side of Syrians and, and Egyptians and, and Libyans. And, and, and what the Obama administration did to, to, to support that idea with rhetoric, but never really um, backed it up with anything beyond that. And then also, I think you need to understand just how chaotic and brutal the civil war was in Syria. So, you know, what got this guy uh, to the point of saying, I, I, I want to seek the order of ISIS was just, you know, years of airstrikes and um, rebel groups running rampant, looting, pillaging. And when ISIS came along saying, you know, eye for an eye code of justice, you know, if someone steals, chop off his hand. That was an example he used to me actually of, you know, what he what appealed to him. Um, he just he kind of grabbed onto that as something that he thought would at least bring some sort of, of order. Ultimately, obviously, it, it, it actually exacerbated the chaos more than anything. So the book starts out with this kind of introduction where you're, I think, in like in a Humvee going into Mosul and there's drones dropping grenades on top of that. You get into yeah. the city, there's car bombs and the whole thing is insane. I mean, what's going through your head? I mean, for I know you, you throughout the book, you say you have a fiance back in the United States. I mean, you were in the thick of it. And I think for a lot of Americans, I mean, I had never read this level of kind of war coverage about this stuff. I mean, for us, it seems so distant. You know, they talk about, you know, car bombs going off. And you just don't think about a full-blown war happening 
in right. the Middle East. I mean, for me, like, especially in a situation like that, like where you're sitting in a Humvee and you don't really have the ability to do anything about about what's happening around you. Um, and sometimes, you know, those are like 14-hour days in the Humvee a lot of times. I, unfortunately for myself, like, I, I, I don't get, like, an adrenaline rush from covering uh, combat. Like, I, you know, some, some reporters get like uh like almost like a high from it and feel like it's where they're supposed to be in that moment and like i, I never get that i just am sort of terrified and so i i i kind of just count to a uh, hundred over and over in my head and i also really focus on taking like as detailed notes as i can on the one hand because it's better for the stories but almost just like a kind of like way to not to like, take my mind off it but to remember like why i'm there um and so like my notebooks from days of battle are like really detailed and 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 um, i think some of that comes off in the book actually just like what it sounds like, what it feels like, what's going on in my head, um, and uh, and and actually, you know, what I'm observing of the the soldiers around me and how they're acting and reacting, which is like really the point of me being there. Did Did you have any intent to get that deep into it when you went yeah. over? Yeah, I mean, um, you, you know, to to get the kind of embed that you're t- that in the scene that you're describing, where we're actually in that scene, we were the uh, I was in the first Humvee to push into Western Mosul, you know, in that in that on that front. So um, you know, we're crossing the threshold, you know, first and and. Uh, you know, to get the a unit like that was a really I, I, I would only embed like that with a really specialized unit. Like I, that's probably the best uh, Iraqi unit that there is. Um, they're uh, a special operations unit that was trained by the U.S. Green Berets and, 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 and U.S. Special Operations Forces. To get them to agree to put me in a Humvee is like really tough, right? Yeah. Because like why would they want some some idiot there who can't fight? So so I, I actually started the process of arranging that, um, you know, weeks ahead of time. And I, I met them in Baghdad before they shipped up to Mosul. And, you know, I, I traveled with them and, you know, it was kind of always in the commander's ear, like to get that kind of access and to get it so that they that they trust you. All right. Well, let's before we get to Mosul, let's back up a little bit to the Syrian civil war. One of the things that st- stuck out to me, too, was that the you talked to some of the Free Syrian Army moderate rebels and they said that the CIA gave them enough weapons and support to fight Assad, but not enough to actually win. Yeah. Is that, is that actually true, do you think? And what could be the strategic rationale for that? Yeah. No, I do think it's true. And that, that my assessment is based on like a lot of my own reporting um, with sources on the record. I, I, th- I think it's part of the idea that like America doesn't know for itself, you know, from the government on down to the people, like what we stand for and what we're willing to put behind it in the world. Um and so I think there was a sense that the American people felt and that, you know, the Obama administration felt that we have to back these people, right? They're, they're, they're calling for um, democracy and, and human rights and things that we consider to be American ideals. We can't just say, hey, well, you're, you're going to be left to the slaughter. But at the same time, you know, I think the Obama administration and also, you know, I think a lot of Americans don't want to be in the business of regime change either. And the Obama administration in particular was really concerned with what would happen if the rebels won and there would be the power vacuum. But unfortunately, what that ends up being is the policy that you just laid out, which is we did back the opposition with uh, weapons from the CIA and also with like State Department aid, political support. The U.S. stood up an opposition uh, government in exile. They sent non-lethal aid, night vision goggles, all these kind of supplies to the rebels for years. And they always made sure that they didn't win, right? Like they weren't going to give them the weapons to actually win. And so the, I, I heard countless times from the CIA uh, vetted and and, uh, and armed commanders, you know, I'd meet them over years and they always had the same story. Like whenever we get to a certain point where we're actually pushing against the regime, the support dries up. That's their assessment from like their, their own very narrow viewpoint of it. But also that ended up being, I think, 
what what the policy looked like, right? Like if you look at it from a top level, and you know, I, I think America needs to accept the fact that 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 actually is a policy of prolonging civil war, right? It would have been more ethical just to not do anything than to than to keep proxies alive, mm-hmm. and, and 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 also that you know you have to you know think about what kind of signal that gives to the Saudi Arabia and Qatar and Turkey, then fund their own proxies, um, and and so that that I think I think it's important to keep that in mind because. You know, I'm always pushing the message to Americans and to the government, like we, you know, we have responsibility for the outcome in Syria. Like we are responsible for the refugees. Like we are, like there, America played a very, a very big role in in all of this. Um, that that I think we don't really fully grapple with. Yeah, I don't want to just Monday morning quarterback, but this seems like the worst possible strategy of all. Where yeah. you know, we either don't have the stability of the Assad regime, as right. brutal as it is, or we don't actually eliminate it. And yeah. Throw fuel on this fire for years. Right. I mean, and, and like, you know, as a journalist, like you, you get to Monday morning quarterback and like, that's my, my, my sort of sacred right <laughs> as a journalist. But like, you know, in fairness to the Obama administration, you know, they arrived at a very terrible policy, but you know, w- 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 with respects to his side, like you just laid out, it wasn't for a lack of trying to find the right answer. It's just, you know, I think they, they, at time and again, they just came to, to ineffective policy solutions. It is a big contrast with the current government, right? That just sort of makes snap decisions and throws everything into chaos. So Easier to say in retrospect that it was a big failure. Harder to say what might have worked. Well, if they were listening to me back when I was in 11th grade <laughs> tell, telling Obama what he should be doing, we'd be in a much yeah. better place right now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. Like, uh, I, I give talks sometimes at, um, at universities, and, and I'm like, for me, like, the Arab Spring is such a foundational moment. And it's like, it, it, it's uh, understanding it is so central to understanding, you know, the shortcomings of the U.S. engagement with the region. And I and I realize that like you know these people that are you know eighteen now or ten, and, and and so I, yeah I do wonder like with the with the younger people like how much of that history is even even present for them anymore. Yeah, you got and you got to worry about the lessons that they've drawn from. Everything. But like you were paying attention to the Arab Spring. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I was fascinating at the Middle East. I had Rosetta Stone Arabic back okay. in you know eighth grade, and I was I gave up on it, <laughs> but I had but I had it. Um, I hope we don't lose the history. You know, like it, it's easy just to kind of like. Look at what's happening in the world through the prism of now, um, yeah. but you really got to get. I mean, that's right. That's why I wrote the book. I, 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 I just don't think you can get even like what's going on with the Kurds and Trump and Syria right now if you don't get the full sweep of of, of the Arab Spring, but also like the Iraq War. You know, these commandos that I'm with in uh, these Iraqi commandos that I'm with in Mosul, they've been fighting on the U.S. side since 2005, right? So by the time I'm with them in 2017, it's like 12 years for some of these guys that they've been almost nonstop fighting some version of U.S. wars. Well, that, and it's, the degree of continuity is amazing, especially when you consider for us in America, it's like, oh, the Iraq war lasted, then it ended, and then a second war started. Right. When, I mean, the book makes clear, it never ended. I mean, this was an right. ongoing struggle for a long time. Can you say something? So something I've always been intrigued by, I, um, I've read a lot about the war in Afghanistan like the in the 80s, like the jihad against the Soviets. And I always became, I became fascinated with these kind of like frontier cities where they would launch the war. You know, there is Peshawar in yeah. uh, Pakistan. Here, you're in Antakya and Gaziantep where you have all these people, the smugglers, right. the rebels. What's it like being in those cities? I mean, is it really as, you know, in my head, you've got, you know, you have the aid people, the Westerners, the spies, yep. the whatever. Is it really like that? Yeah. You know, it's funny that you mentioned Peshawar because I I actually only read about that myself, you know, and, and I always had that in mind from what I'd read. When I was in Antakya in particular, you know, Antakya, especially in like 2012, and, you know, I I try to get it across in the book, you know, I had an apartment there at one point. It was like, just, I I think the way I describe it in the book, it's like, it's this very unique city. It's always been on the frontiers of history. It's Antioch in the Bible. And it was on the edge of the Byzantine Empire and, and the Persian Empire and like, you know, always like 
plagued by earthquakes and in, invasions and it's like uh it's really this like very unique place and it has a very unique identity still and it's a you know you could feel the ancient you know character of the city as you walk around it and this, it was like as if all of a sudden like a storm surge like kind of crashed through the city and left behind all this debris all of a sudden almost overnight journalists appeared <laughs> aid workers appeared spies rebels foreign fighters I remember, you know, it, it just to, this is kind of how it happens. I mean, and this is how a lot of journalists arrive there and elsewhere. Like, I was actually supposed to move to Pakistan for news. I was based in London. I'd been um, assigned to go become the new bureau chief in Pakistan to cover Afghanistan. That's why I was reading huh. about these places. I was like, you know, trying to set up uh, Urdu lessons and, you know, for like six months. And my, I had, because I had covered the Arab Spring, like through my computer uh, and also like a little bit on the ground back when I was like, in, in, in New York, especially when the civil war all of a sudden, like in Syria exploded into like the news because in, it was in summer of 2012 and it went from being like this rebellion that probably isn't going to work. And, you know, it's just like in the countryside and in this one city called Homs, all of a sudden they were in Aleppo, which is the commercial capital of Syria. And they had at the same time uh, assassinated um, some like key members of the Assad regime in Damascus, and it was like the, a news sensation. And all of a sudden, everybody's paying attention. And I remember uh, I got a call. I, I was literally supposed to move to Pakistan at 8 a.m. the next morning, and I was cleaning out my desk. I had like boxes and stuff. I'd shipped almost all the stuff, all my clothes already, and everything else. And I got a call from my editor saying, "Just just go to this uh, Antakya for a couple weeks, see what happens, and you know, then you can go on to Pakistan." And I said, like, what's Antakya? <laughs> you know, and I looked it up on a map. And then, you know, the next morning I was there. And I remember when I arrived at the airport there, you know, I, I had to like find a taxi or something because I was just kind of like this, this nobody correspondent. But the, there were all these uh, people holding signs of like all these famous journalists. And I remember walking past the signs being like, wow. And also like, I'm going to get my ass kicked. Like, there's like some really, really good reporters, <laughs> you know. And like, so every, all, it was like, like that overnight. It just became the center of attention. And it stayed like that for a long time. And, and you really like, I, you know, I used to be sitting on the balcony of this hotel that I described in the book and it looked over the main, one of the main streets in Antakya and be sipping like my very bad um, coffee. And, you know, you, I, I, you know, you'd see like a, like a jihadi in like army fatigues with a beard, just like walking straight down the street, like, you know, or in the same balcony, I might meet like an American diplomat. Like, you know, you, you'd see you actually on the same balcony also see like money men from the Gulf sitting with rebel commanders with their laptops and they'd be showing them videos to prove that they were really fighting and they were doing financial transactions. It was like really the center of that kind of murky wartime economy. That's crazy. that's crazy. And you talked about in this too, there's a lot of people you meet that kind of make money from ISIS, either smuggling oil or a lot of people kind of working with ISIS, but yeah. not really part of ISIS. What's, I mean, should those people be held to account, do you think? What's going on with them now? Have they just dispersed now that ISIS is mostly on their own? I mean, I, I think like, ISIS is one of its great strengths is, is its ability to tap into people like that. I think I described them in the book as like a shadow network. They're always there. And like as soon as you turn on the light, they're gone because they're not actually ISIS, right? You know, the people I knew that were kind of in and out of ISIS's orbit, they are involved in their own sort of criminal activities. If, you know, oftentimes they're refugees and, you know, they need to support their families. And so they, they'll be involved in whatever kind of criminal enterprise they can. And then when ISIS needs them to, um, or when they can find a way to make money from it, they'll do work for ISIS too. I, um, you know, I remember talking to a smuggler once and he told me, he wanted me to do a story about this because um, he was annoyed about it. But he said, you know, ISIS came to um, our smuggling group and they said, you guys can do your business. We don't want you to change anything. But when we tell you that we want you to work with us, you have to do it. And if you don't agree, then you can't work here at all anymore. And I, I, I think the fact that they saw that that 
gave them like the ultimate flexibility. Um, it was really uh, strategic. And it means that like as long as there's chaos and instability in, in Syria and as long as there's suffering and, you know, people needing to find a way to keep afloat, um, they're able to maintain some sort of dexterity in using these kind of networks. So one of the big things that's been in the news lately about ISIS too is obviously that Baghdadi has been killed. Yeah. Uh, based off the people you know and just being over there, do you think that will make a big difference? I mean, given that the caliphate's been pretty much wrapped up now, were people fighting because of Baghdadi? What role is he playing based off what you saw? I'm not like an expert on senior ISIS leadership and I don't want to pretend to be, but um, you know, my sense just like I really focused on like the the lower levels of the group and stuff and yeah. I I don't I never got the sense that like he was some kind of really inspirational figure the way that like Bin Laden was mm -hmm. like I wrote in a piece recently like I you know I remember like you you might I, I met a guy that was a, a an Al Qaeda supporter a Syrian and I went to go interview him about something unrelated to Bin Laden like I didn't want to talk about Bin Laden and he he you know we did the interview and he was like. But now you just got to listen to like the recordings of the Sheikh. Like you have to listen. He just, he was like so like wrapped by Bin Laden's sermons and speeches and stuff. And he was just like convinced that like if I would just listen to them, I would just see like how amazing they were and it would like convince me. And I, I never got the sense that like people felt like that with mm -hmm. Baghdadi. And like, you know, Bin Laden was like intentionally a front man and had this just massive ego and you know, Baghdadi was different. Like he was the caliph and, and he was, you know, and, the, and there was a caliphate, right? And, and that's important. Like, like we should not pretend like it doesn't matter, right? Like it does. But it's, it's, uh, he also was like intentionally like a shadow figure and, and he led from the background. He made one public appearance, you know, to announce the caliphate. You know, I think he even said in like one of his last speeches, there's been leaders before me and there will be leaders after me. ISIS did have, and, and does, I think probably to a degree still have command and control, right? But they also like, were able to sort of weaponize loose, random networks as well. And so they carried out sophisticated terrorist attacks relatively, nothing like 9-11, but like what happened in Paris and, and, and uh, in Brussels, you know, where operatives come and, carry, and, and, and conduct violence. But they also, you know, kind of gave permission for anybody to say that they were an ISIS member and carry out an attack. Bin Laden would never have allowed that, right? You know, just stab somebody in a, uh, on, on the street or drive a, drive a truck into a crowd or shoot up a nightclub like in Orlando and say that you're with ISIS and that's an ISIS attack. And, you know, because ISIS was willing to embrace that, and, and I, I do think that they have the ability after a leader is killed to sort of continue, in, you know, to inspire attacks and, and, to, uh, and to persist, in, in even especially in the public imagination, uh, more so than like Al-Qaeda does without Bin Laden. Not that, and Al-Qaeda obviously is still a threat too, you know, with Bin Laden gone. Yeah, and so President Trump obviously has an incentive with the election coming up to say that ISIS is totally destroyed and defeated and on the run and yeah. they've killed their leader. But you talk about in the book too that ISIS sent, and maybe they were just talking, hyping up this threat more than was their case, but sending waves of ISIS fighters within the refugees to Europe and all over the world is I mean, do you think ISIS, is ISIS defeated? Is Does ISIS have all these sleeper cell fighters over the world the way that they claim to? I, I think like when we think if ISIS is defeated, like we don't need to think about whether they still have like sleeper cells in, in the West or not, but we can think like they have thousands of fighters in Iraq and Syria. The way to talk about ISIS's defeat is to say the so-called caliphate, their, their state that they had is defeated, right? They don't hold territory anymore. That's what we should be saying. And they remain like a threat in, in even in Iraq and Syria. And, you know, the reason that um, most national security professionals were so against Trump's uh, withdrawal plans is because the, the U.S. troops and the Kurdish uh, counterterrorism units that they work with in Syria were 
involved in like a still unfinished effort to roll up those ISIS networks. And I think there's this, you know, the, the, the Pentagon is saying now that 600 troops will remain in Syria exp- expressly because of this problem, right? Can they still do the job with all the chaos that Trump has injected into the region? I'm, I'm really, I don't know. It probably, it's, it's certainly hampered their efforts. Um, but I do think also like there's a danger in just declaring a premature victory. Like I think it makes, uh, I was talking to a really um, smart analyst named Bruce Hoffman about this uh, a couple of years ago. And like he, he said, like there's a danger in making ISIS appear like the phoenix that just keeps rising from the ashes. If they were to commit a terrorist attack again, or if they were to see some pocket of territory again, the fact that the American people have been told by Trump through the bully pulpit that ISIS is defeated when they inevitably do something again, it makes them seem even more powerful and unstoppable than they really than they really are. I think the right way to say is like they're still a threat. They've been decimated, um, and we need to continue the effort. and And we should be conscious that you know something could happen again, and we should be ready to face it when it happens. Well, I think that's exactly what happened with the attacks in Sri Lanka. I mean, there are so many headlines after those suicide bombings on Easter there. It was like, ISIS is back. ISIS is yeah. back. Well, ISIS never left. Right. And it, yeah, it gives them this kind of like super villain quality um, that it helps them recruit and it makes people more afraid than they need to be. Yeah. Well, you mentioned, you know, you got foreign fighters coming from everywhere in the world. I can't remember though if you met any of them in the book. The only foreign fighter I describe meeting in the book is um, a Chechen. A Chechen. Uh, who I met early in the war, but like was, you know, did not want to talk to me. Um <laughs> It's a funny story. Like he, uh, he was so reserved, and his Syrian companion was so loud, and would you know, and uh, it was the very beginning of the war. And I remember, I I don't think I put this in the book, but or, or maybe it is there in some form. But like, I kept asking him, like, how did you get here? He's from Tunisia. He'd fought in Chechnya, and he was now coming to Syria. And it was before ISIS and everything. And it was just like, how? And he he had latched on to this like sort of absurd Syrian uh, commander. And was he were, fighting Assad or what team was he? At that, at that point, he was going into, he was about to go to Syria to fight Assad. Okay. I met him on the same balcony I was telling you guys. Oh, about. nice. And I'm like, how did you find this Syrian? He's like, I was told he was a, a man of God. I'm like, okay, you're right. But he's like a completely obscure dude from the mountains. Like, how, the, how did you find him? And like, he just like wouldn't answer because I guess it would have been like, what's the network that brought you here, yeah. you know? And um, what role is this commander playing in it, which is what I was trying to find out. But I, I remember I said, where did you, how did you even get here? Like, because I, I, I'm like, you know, I'm like, you, okay, you're you're some dude in, the, you're in Tunisia or Chechnya or wherever. How did you find out to come here? And pulled out some map. It was like a bus map. Hmm. And it had a little dot on a town called Salopi in, in Turkey or, or in Iraq or some, it was like somewhere around that area. I can't remember which side of the border it was on. He had a blue dot. And I was like, who put the dot on your map? You know, and he just got up and walked away. So, <laughs> so that was my very huh. unsuccessful encounter with like trying to like break down like how these guys were getting there. But you used to be able to like get on the plane. So I lived in Istanbul. It's a two hour flight to Antakya to then get down to Syria. And I used to get on the plane from Istanbul. It would be full of like, you know, clearly like jihadis. It, Turkish Airlines, you know, it's great. Wow. One of the star lines. Wow. And uh, I, I used to like get on and, and and joke around and be like, Aleppo? We're going to Aleppo? You know, like, <laughs> and, and, and like, you know. You get dirty dirty looks for that it joke? Like, it was just like, it was just, it was absolutely ridiculous. I, don't, I would not want to be on a plane with a bunch of jihadis. Given that <laughs> yeah, you know what? <laughs> you know, I, I'm like a... Uh, you know, friendly guy. And like one time there was, I remember a guy in like, uh, like this big long headdress was like getting off the plane, clearly not because like they speak Turkish in Turkey. Like, I mean, they speak Arabic also in Antakya, but he was clearly not from there. And, um, and he, he had like this big bag and he was like trying to, and, and like another bag. And I felt bad for him. And I, so I grabbed one of his bags to help him carry it off the plane. And then all of a sudden I like, I was like, Oh God, like, what am I going (laughs) to like, what am I actually, you know, what am I doing? But it was like so commonplace down back then, you know? And, um, 
it, it just like it was really like you know the Turkish government just decided like these guys are going to defeat Assad and you know we don't care and like it was just it was madness. So this Chechen dude, do you know what ended up happening to him? I heard, I never confirmed, but I heard from the same commander that I, I had met him with years later that he would became a senior ISIS official. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask about some of these rebels and these rebel groups ended up joining ISIS later. And that yeah. seems to, the isolationist case was don't arm these rebels at all because they're, none of them are actually moderate the way that the media is saying, just ISIS members and waiting. Right. What, what was your read on the situation? At the very beginning of the war, like in 2012, there were moderate rebels. Like the, the Free Syrian Army was predominantly made up of uh, officers who had defected rather than carry out orders to fire on protesters. And if you think about like the Syrian army, like if you're a colonel or a major or a general and you're vetted, you know, you're not, you're not Al Qaeda, right? Like, like that's a, that is a police state, you know, they take, they take that stuff really seriously. And so, you know, those, those guys led the war effort at the very beginning. And like, you know, I remember like, I think it was like my first week in Antakya. They, they actually, they kept all the senior officers in this uh, military refugee camp in Turkey. They like isolated them, which was a big, I think a big mistake. And I, um, I talked to the, the, the leader of the free Syrian army and he was a general, I did an interview with him and it was like on the record and he said, there are Al Qaeda elements in the rebellion. He said, they're weak right now. We're stronger, but it's not going to last. They are getting unlimited funds or they're, they're, you know, they're getting funding by allies, their allies who don't play by any rules. And if we're not able to counter that by offering salaries and steady supply of ammunition to our own fighters, they're going to go to these groups just because they're going to be stronger. And we're, we have, we're fighting a life or death struggle against the Assad regime. That obviously happened exactly as he said. And there were, I, I do think like it's a, it's a very suspect rewriting of history to say now there were never any moderates. By 2014, 2015, when the U.S. is making the decision in northeastern Syria to partner with the Kurds, saying that there's no moderate rebels that they can work with to fight ISIS. By that point, I think it's fair to say, yeah, the moderates really were like killed mainly by ISIS, right? And by Assad. And yeah, there was not really, I don't think, a, a, a real chance to find some kind of force. You know, the Defense Department tried. You know, it was a boondoggle. Um, but early 2012, they were definitely there. Now, there's one, I don't know how much time I have left, but something I got to ask about. You mentioned that you're kidnapped in Ukraine in the book. Yeah. Covering the war there. What happened? <laughs> uh, I was, it was like a day napping, a light abduction. I, I, um, more, more than I'm familiar with. So. No, it, you know, I mean, for me, obviously I told you, I don't get adrenaline and I'm, uh, I get scared easily. So for me, it was really scary, but I, I, I was, um, covering the war, um, in the beginning of the civil war in Eastern Ukraine. And there was a day when the fighting got like really bad. And so I was at my hotel and the fighting had happened in a place, I think it was like three hours from where I was staying. And I got, you know, I got the call from my editor at like 6 a.m. Like, you need to get out there. Like, it's like, you know, it's really getting getting crazy. And so I got, I went and uh, got my driver and my translator and I drove in that direction. And it's like sometimes in a war, like something kicks it to like the next level. You don't know where like the red lines are anymore. Like, th I think those are always the most dangerous points. You, you know, I, there's a scene where I get like beat up and arrested in Cairo. It was a similar thing. Like, like the war kicks into a gear that like what when before you might like in Cairo, before I might have been able to like pull my American card with police and like, they'll never touch me on this day. Everything changed. And now the fact that I'm an American journalist makes them want to beat the crap out uh -huh. of me. And so in, in, in this situation, like the, the, you know, people were dying and the Ukrainian, um, the, the, the Russian media that like sort of had the Ukrainian 
pro-Russian rebels like in in this in their in its grip was kind of pumping this idea that Americans jets or helicopters were killing civilians, which obviously wasn't happening. But so I got to a checkpoint that maybe the day before I may have been able to pass through and they pulled me out and threatened to kill me because once they found out I was an American, you know, wow. guy had a gun. He's like, I should just execute you. And instead, they um, they blindfolded me and my translator and put us on a, a bus. And they did the same with like an, other journalists at that checkpoint and I think another checkpoint. So it was me and and some TV crews and they, um, you know, they, they brought us to like a, I don't like it was like a shed, like a farm shed and interrogate us and stuff. But ultimately, they, they decided that they'd like let us go. Wow. Pretty crazy stuff. Crazy. So yeah. we're almost out of time. So I just final question: What are you up to next? Any more war zones? No, actually, now I am. I live in D.C. Um, I started recently at the Atlantic, cover intelligence and national security. If there are any spies listening, you know my uh, my contact information is on my Twitter account. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm I'm actually really enjoying it, and uh, I'm going to spend the next you know the foreseeable future like building up that beat. It's a new beat for me, learning the ins and outs of intelligence here. And, all right. Hopefully, you're not thrown in prison anytime soon in DC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not afraid of DC prison. We'll see. Um, All right, Mike. Thank you for coming on. All right. Thanks for having me. Well, Mike has just left the building. As always, thank you to him. Thank you all for still listening. We know this was a longer episode, but we trust that you enjoy it because we certainly did. We, I mean, I could have talked to him for another hour. As a reminder, full episodes of Banter are available every week, typically Wednesday morning, sometimes on Thursdays, sometimes Tuesdays, even. And please, if you enjoy this podcast, leave us a review or like us or email us at banter at AEI.org. We have two new iTunes reviews this past week. I don't know what it was. Something motivated these people. <laughs> First of them, or <laughs> my favorite one was, the title is The Army Expansion Institute's Best Podcast. To clarify, that is not a real name. We're the American <laughs> Enterprise Institute, but I, I can see the confusion here. But he says, love AEI, love banter. Very concerned, though, that Matt Winesett totally snitched on his brother for jeweling. Not chill. Gonna make for an awkward Thanksgiving. But I'm always giving you guys five stars anyway, because I assume once you guys get enough five-star ratings, they let you into the Illuminati. Dash CK. I don't know who CK is, but I also, I did not snitch on Dill. He, uh, he's 18. It's not, a, it's not a crime. He's perfectly allowed to jewel. But we appreciate the comment, CK. Yeah, Keep thank you, up. CK. I doubt he listens to it anyway, so I, uh, Thanksgiving might not be that awkward. Uh, second comment we got says, lighthearted yet substantive, look out, Brookings Cafeteria. Real banter and policy ratio is on point. What ratio Five are stars. they talking about? I don't know. Two dudes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we appreciate that. We're glad that you enjoyed. It's nice to get a confidence booster after we got some nasty comments a couple weeks ago. Yeah. We're glad you like it. What else? Anything else happened in your life, Matt? Anything you should tell us about? Uh, nothing, nothing I need to share. I will say we could have talked a lot more about that episode. I, I wanted to ask him what he thought of the of Obama not enforcing his so-called red line in Syria and if that if he thinks that would have made much of a difference. I mean, I think the he, I, he mentioned here at one point, I think that he when he said that there are chemical attacks or whatever, then that would be it. And then he, I think I uh, he does mention in the book the fact that Obama did not enforce the red line. Yeah. He, I mean, this is a more even-handed journalism story focusing on the the people involved. So I didn't Well, that's one of the things I really liked about the book was I couldn't I couldn't tell at all what his um political stance was, but I think I mean, he, he, yeah, he just tells it through the people. So you can kind of draw your own conclusions about what should have happened, what we should have done. And it's hard. It shows kind of the issue with the war overall yeah. in that, yeah, sure, we, we could have taken out Assad. Maybe we should have. But when you look at the people and you, when you look at everything that's going on, on the ground, you know, it's really a difficult decision. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I still have no idea what his, what, his, what his own opinions are on 
what we should have done in 2012, 2013. We need more journalists like him. Yeah. It's fake news media. Honestly. But I, I mean, the impression that I got, though, just and I don't know if this was intended, his purpose in writing it was that the Obama administration just messed up royally with this entire Syrian mm-hmm. civil war. Like, I mean, either support the rebels or don't. But just to prolong the crisis for years on end fueled. I mean, do you remember in 2016 or 2015, there's this girl at college who went viral challenging Jeb Bush by saying she stood up and yelled like your brother created ISIS. And Jeb Bush was like, I mean, it became a headline because Jeb didn't really have a good response to it because he just didn't have a whole lot. I guess he got caught off guard. But if, if, if anything created ISIS, it was just this constant fuel that was being poured on the fire by giving arms to rebels just to prolong a conflict that could never end. Yeah. I mean, also the withdrawal from Iraq in 2011. Yeah. I mean, we pretty much had ISIS completely on the back foot. And, I, mean, I didn't realize until I read this. We, we had Baghdadi in jail too. Yeah. We had Baghdadi in jail. We had Zarqawi. You found that in Iraq in prison. At least he's in prison in Jordan. I mean, the whole. I think the whole story of what ha- what's happened in Syria is pretty much... I heard someone say. I heard someone say recently. Someone who's involved in kind of the Iraq decision making, and they said that his concern is that people are going to draw the wrong conclusions from what happened in Iraq, and rather than saying, "Look, we did this wrong in Iraq. This is what we should be doing now. This is what we should be doing ahead," people are going to look at it and say, "Look, we did this wrong in Iraq. Therefore, we should never get involved in any of these, you know, in anything closely related to regime change ever." The fact is, I mean, the situation we have in Syria right now. Well, it's hard to imagine it could be any worse. Yeah. I mean, given that what happened was the worst case scenario, a terrorist, a terrorist state took over massive swaths of it but and into Iraq. Pretty much the worst case scenario happened. Now you could argue that's all done and now you have Assad reclaiming the thing. But you still have in northwestern Syria and Idlib over a million people stuck in this area. That's like a pending attack waiting. That's the last rebel output. Tons of al-Qaeda elements, jihadi elements in there. So it's gone as, about as poorly as it could go. Yeah, a central tenet of conservatism is that it always can get worse. But in this case, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it could be in some outlandish situation, but it's hard to imagine that we could have made it much worse if we tried in twenty, from 2011 to 2016 or so. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think Trump did make it worse by withdrawing. And now, like like you said in the podcast a second ago, we're going to be leaving five, 600 troops in Syria. Oh, definitely. Who talked to us about that recently? Rubin. R- Michael Rubin, yeah. Yeah, so I guess, you know, I'm, I'm wrong. It can always be worse, so... On that uplifting note, we'll have a better, more uplifting note next week where we have Joe Ricketts, founder and CEO of TD Ameritrade, talking about his new book, The Harder You Work, The Luckier You Get. Also owner of the Chicago Cubs. Yes. We'll hopefully have have time to talk about that as well. Maybe rub in the Nationals victory. With that, thank you for turning in. See you next week. <laughs>